Well, we continue today in 1 Peter with the New Testament reading from chapter 3 of 1 Peter. And the sermon title, Finally, All of You, or in some Bibles, Likewise, All of You, it's intended to structure what has been going on since chapter 2, the middle of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 12 or so. Peter is clearly wrapping up his train of thought here when he says, finally, all of you. Right? That's, that's how you kind of close a section. Well, finally, all of you. And the linkage goes like this. The train goes like this. The whole community, as a community of free people, is to be subject to human institutions. To the emperor. In their case, Nero. To governors. We are to honor everyone, he says. Love God. Fear God. Love the brotherhood. Honor all people. After the example of Christ, household servants even are to be subject to masters that are unreasonable. Christian wives subject for the gospel's sake to even unbelieving husbands and husbands called to honor their wives as co-heirs, co-equal heirs of the grace of life. So the whole community of the church is linked together by the ethos of imitating the one, the one who placed himself under, or who subjected himself to unjust suffering. Right, at the hands of, a, of an overweening state, and who refused to revile, and who, when he suffered, refused to threaten. So that what Peter is trying to do is to forge or to shape a community of people who are formed or shaped in the way of the cross. In the way of the one who said, as we just heard, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. The astonishing words. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. Someone takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt. Give to everyone who asks. If anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. That one. That one who in another place said, blessed are you. Blessed are you when people hate you. When they exclude you. Right? When they discriminate against you. When they insult you. When they reject your name as evil. And then what what does Jesus say? He says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Because great is your reward in heaven. And because that is how they treated the prophets before you. And to make this clear, that this call, this summons to cruciformity, to the imitation of Christ, from which no one is exempt... Peter starts here with, finally, 
all of you. I started with all of you, then I spoke to servants, then I spoke to wives, then I spoke to husbands, now I'm back to everybody. Finally, all of you. Yes, there are these structures to which Christians in their different stations in life submit. But in the church, in the body of the crucified Christ, they are not exercised the way Gentiles exercise authority. Everything in the church, especially leadership, is tempered or softened, if you will, by this kind of mutuality, this this spirit of deference and honor and respect, which Peter outlines here as applying to all. So with that, we'll make three points. They're in the bulletin. Virtue, blessing, and peace. Virtue, blessing, and peace. So first then, virtue. You'll notice verse 8 in the text. It's 1 Peter 3, verse 8. There are there five qualities or five virtues or five fruits of the Spirit listed. So we could retitle this first point then, five points for Calvinists. Five points for Calvinists. It would be good for us if we were known for these five things. We have these doctrinal truths, right? Doctrinal affirmations. Things like the tulip. Other reformed doctrines, which are wonderful. Right? But if those things are affirmed and they are defended without these five points, then they're worthless. Right? They're less than worthless. Now, if you look at the five virtues themselves here in in verse 8, there's a kind of pattern to them. The first and the fifth have to do with the intellect. And the second and the fourth have to do with the emotions. And the middle one, love, is what binds them all together. So I want to look at them in accordance with this pattern. One and five, two and four, and then three. So if you're trying to figure out why I'm going in this order, that's why. So with that, the first one is like-minded. Finally, all of you, be like-minded. So this is a frame of mind which, even when there's disagreement, prevails, right? It recognizes the broader, wider, deeper agreement that we all have in Christ. Peter's already told us earlier in his epistle, to have our minds girded for action, to have, in light of our hope, sobriety, sober minds. So he's already been shaping our minds, forging our minds together. Right? What, what else is an apostolic letter but an exercise in forging or creating unity of mind among the congregation you're writing to? So it's a reminder, an important reminder. We have the same heritage. We have the same Lord, the same faith, the same baptism, the same spirit, the same hope. Right? The same God and Father of all. 
So when we're called then to like-mindedness, this is not a fiction. It's not something we have to invent. It's a gift. There's a profound family likeness. There's a deep, substantive ethos, spirit, that we all share in Jesus Christ. Like-mindedness. And so this is what moderns would call a relational virtue. Right? It, it, it's a relational virtue that knows how to conform to a community's inheritance in a winsome and an agreeable way, in a way that's sensitive to the views of others, in a way that maintains what we call order and proportion. You guys know that, right? Order and proportion. First things first, second things second, third things third. Big things big. Medium things medium, little things little. Order and proportion. You need that if there's going to be like-mindedness. The like-minded person adopts an attitude, lives out that attitude in, a pers- you know, in this pursuit, passionate pursuit of harmony. And this like-mindedness is coupled at the end of the list with humility. So humility is the key virtue if there is to be like-mindedness. It's not even possible to have it without humility. Humility is the lifeblood of unity. And we do not esteem it, humility, as we should. We esteem winning much more. Winning. The ancient world despised humility. We've talked about that here before. They despise, our fallen hearts despise it. One scholar puts it this way. In the highly competitive and stratified world of Greco-Roman antiquity, stratified meaning, you know, you had classes. Only those of degraded social status were, quote, humble. It was degrading to be humble. Humility, he goes on and says, was regarded as a sign of weakness and of shame and of an inability to defend one's honor. Stand up and act like a man. Humility cuts against that. And thus the high value, he says, placed on it by Christians is all the more remarkable. Humility cuts against the grain of the Greco-Roman hero, the self-assured man, the man of valor, and the man of action. The humble person is, in fact, not self-assertive. Because their self has been crucified. Because they know that we see through a glass darkly. So he or she takes the position of a slave and refuses to fight and refuses to defend their status because they're secure in Christ, because their inheritance is in heaven. If my kingdom was of this world, then my servants would be fighting. Right? This humble person deems the peace of the community greater than their own petty dignity or their own alleged rights. 
It is at the heart of the way of Jesus, the ethic of Jesus, the way of the cross, to be ready and willing, to be shaped, to have a predisposition to lay one's rights down. Even one's constitutional rights, even one's legal rights, even one's natural rights. That is precisely what Jesus did when confronted with abusive state power. This is a radical alternative mode of being. And we are not shaped by it, by the, by the broader American culture. We are shaped to something else. We are to have, then, the mind in us, right? Right? Peter talks about like-mindedness. Well, here's the mind. The mindset. The intellectual habit which was in Christ Jesus who did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself out setting aside his rights, taking the form of a servant, he is the model. And he describes himself as lowly and meek and humble of heart. So that's like-mindedness and humility. The second couplet is sympathetic and compassionate. Be sympathetic, be compassionate. Here the two are virtually identical. Sympathetic means to feel with. And compassionate means essentially to suffer with. These are emotional virtues. Right? They're in the realm of the will, the emotions, the affections. And one needs a high emotional IQ to demonstrate them. Right? In both cases here, Sympathy and compassion, we're talking about the moral capacity to get inside and underneath the other person's suffering. Perhaps even harder to get inside and underneath the other person's point of view. But again, again, this is simply the imitation of Christ. For what are we told in the New Testament? We're told in the book of Hebrews. That we have a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. Right? This is, this is not merely some sort of distant, formal sympathy. In Christ, we have a sympathy. We see a sympathy. Which rejoices with those who rejoice. And which weeps with those who weep. I've said it here many times before, but I'll say it again. God commands your emotional life. It won't do here to say, well, I'm not a crier. Or my father never taught me to cry. Or I don't weep much. Or I don't do this. Um, The New Testament doesn't care. It doesn't suggest that you weep with those who weep. It commands you to weep. Right? Right? It's looking for full-blooded, emotional human beings who have sympathy and compassion. In his compassion, 
in the Gospels, Jesus is described as having this word, which means one's internal organs. Some old translations of the Bible will talk about the bowels of compassion. It it means the guts. This is what guts means, by the way. Again, not what you might think it might mean from the broader culture, but this is guts. Guts here means deep, tender-heartedness. That's gutsiness. And all of these virtues, they are bound together by the one in the middle, of course. Love. Love one another. This is Philadelphia, which we've seen earlier, brotherly love, which we've seen earlier in the epistle of Peter. Love those born into the new family. Again, this is not dispassionate love. It's brotherly affection. It's the fulfillment of the second great commandment, to love one another. And it also calls us to the way of the cross, right? Because Jesus said to us, love one another even as I have loved you. Even in that way. Those are the five points for Calvinists. And they're radically countercultural. Let us seek to be known for them. So the second thing here is blessing. Blessing. So we're in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or insult for insult. So this non-retaliation ethic is what the virtues of verse 8, the five points for Calvinists, looks like in practice. This is what it looks like if you cultivate the five virtues in verse 8. It means you will not repay evil for evil. You will not repay insult for insult. You will be known for, in fact, not retaliating. It's very easy to play this tit-for-tat game, to insist on getting even, right? to insist on setting the record straight, to insist on winning the argument, Right, to demanding what is ours, to punching back, setting the score, right? fighting fire with fire. It's the American way. It's also living by the law and not living by the gospel. And it's deep in your bones and mine. We live by the law most of the time. We give lip service to the gospel, but we live by the law. This is deep in our bones. And you know whose bones it's not deep in? Jesus's. Because he refused precisely to play this game. He refuses to repay in like kind. Right? Evil with evil. Insult with insult. Now you might think, well, he refused to do that with, you know, some of the knaves in his personal life maybe with the disciples, maybe with the average person in Galilee that he ran into. That would be true. But we see him doing it, Peter says, with the principalities and powers governing the age. We see that this is his posture, in fact, toward the state. Notice, insult for insult. This brings us into the realm of the tongue, the realm of speech. 
which is where so much wickedness takes root in the church. Because insults, right, verbal mockery or defamation, that's how we get even. I mean, it's how we blow off steam with respect to politicians. Jesus was reviled, threatened. There was an array of hateful, lying speech launched at him, to which he refused to respond in kind. Now, this, Peter says, is how you should behave to all. Toward those inside the church, toward those outside the church. This kind of non-retaliation, this kind of interpersonal, relational peacemaking is incredibly difficult. Incredibly hard. It takes the deepest kind of internal strength. And it is the sign of a truly free person. In short, this is the gift of God's grace every time you enact it. Every time you bite your tongue and walk away and turn the other cheek. And yet, now please follow this. Because here we move deeper and deeper into the mystery of Christ's cross. To the heart of what Christian behavior is to look like. Yet, we are not simply to refrain or to hold our tongues. But we are to positively bless. And it's clear here that the one being blessed is an enemy. An enemy. Have you been blessing your political enemies? Your enemies at work? Your personal enemies? Have you been blessing them? Or do we just continually express contempt? Peter's master taught him that in a world where hating enemies was expected, was considered a manly virtue, even noble. Peter's master says, but I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Could you imagine what our public discourse would sound like if we implemented even half of this? Bless those who persecute you. We can't even bless those who slight us. We can't bless those who cut us off in traffic. Bless and do not curse them. And Peter says to us who are on the receiving end of insult and abuse, on the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Again, this idea of blessing, let me remind you, blessing is in the realm of speech. It's something you do first and foremost with your tongue, what we say. 
what we email, what we text. Blessing means to speak well over, to invoke God's favor upon, and anyone can do it with friends. Doing it with enemies is the summons of the gospel. It's not one of the summons of the gospel. It is the way of the cross. It is at the heart of the gospel. It is at the heart of Jesus' social and political ethic. We are free people, Peter says. We are to be doing this. We are to be doing this. If we are holding grudges, then we are living by the law and not the gospel. In fact, I'd go further to say, if we are not blessing those who've crossed us, who've offended us, who've hurt us, we have a good reason to suggest that we are not in Jesus Christ. Right? There are not two types of Christianity. One, a sort of general, civic, moral, try-and-be-a-decent-person Christianity, and the other, where you follow Jesus into the mystery of the cross. There's only one Christianity, and it does this. This is what it does. Because we're free people, Peter says. And that means, guess what? We're free from having to defend everything about ourselves all the time. This is the first deep liberation. This is what it means to be free. Free from clenched fists and anger. Free from insults and slurs. Free from having long, long memories. Free from vindictiveness. Free to bless. To pour out verbally God's goodness and his benediction on those who get this most decidedly do not deserve it. But they don't deserve it. I'll do this when they do that. It was they who started it, so they need blah, 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 blah. You know how that goes, right? Not only are you pouring the benediction and the blessing of God on those who do not deserve it. Indeed, the text says, you're pouring it on those who deserve the curse of God. Like we deserve the curse of God. If we are cursing those who deserve to be cursed, then we are living by the law and not the gospel. We are using a measure, Jesus says, that we would never want to be measured for. We are setting ourselves up for terror on the last day. Right? If we are cursing those who curse us, we have not even moved into the new covenant, much less entered into the mystery of Christ's cross. So, this repaying of evil with blessing, with benediction, this imitation of our Lord is done, the text says, because it's our calling. We are summoned to this Way of life. Again, it's not an option. Well, this, this is great if you're a pacifist, but I'm not really a pacifist, you know. This is great for the Anabaptists. Maybe the Quakers can do this. Maybe the Mennonites are good at this turning the other cheek stuff. But we're reformed. You know, what do you want us to do? Join the Bruderhof? This is for some other people. 
Right? We are called, summoned by God. Finally, all of you, summoned by God to the verbal blessing of our foes. To the use of our tongues to call down blessing, the blessings of God, on those who not only lack merit. They not only lack merit, but they have piled up demerit. Now, why, why is this such a natural and normal central part of the Christian faith? Because after all, beloved, this is what God, in his astonishing mercy, has done for us in the gospel. Right? Grace, you may have heard this said, grace is unmerited favor. That's not right. right? Grace is demerited favor. It is favor where wrath has been earned. And our salvation is precisely God refusing to retaliate, refusing to treat us as we deserve, and instead heaping blessing on us. So again, if we don't see God in his mercy correctly, we won't understand this ethic. We will think, oh, well, that's just a hard, ridiculous thing to do. All this turning the other cheek and blessing the enemies, that seems crazy. I mean, who can live that way? It's to fundamentally miss the gospel itself. Grace is not unmerited favor. It is favor to those who have demerited and, in fact, merited wrath. And thus we embrace this calling, the text says, that we might inherit a blessing. This is the way to the blessing of your inheritance, which Peter has told you is imperishable and unfading and undefiled, reserved in heaven for you. So we show favor. We bless where cursing is due so that we might inherit the undeserved blessing of everlasting life. And that brings us to the third point, which is peace. Peace. Here Peter quotes from Psalm 34 at length. And the big point here is this. Though you are experiencing suffering, He says to his churches, and though more suffering is coming, you should still live in a way to seek to minimize it. Whoever would love life and see good days. I mean, who wouldn't want that? Right. We all want to love life and see good days. It's a foretaste, an earthly foretaste of our heavenly inheritance. But if you desire this, Peter says, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. And so again, for the third or fourth time in the text, he takes us into the realm of speech, into the realm of that life and death power of the tongue, which James says is a restless evil. So much of our trouble in life is because we have said things we should not have said. Or we have said things in a way that we shouldn't have said them. Now, it may not be up to us, Peter is saying to these Christians. But insofar as it does depend on us, we should be at peace with all men. And what he's saying is this means your speech should be pure and truthful and gracious, seasoned, edifying, 
blessing. Speech which pours grace upon the hearers. He goes on and says we must turn from evil and do good. We must seek peace and pursue it. Right? This corresponds with the earlier ethos of this text. Peacemaking. People who seek genuine shalom and reconciliation. Do you think this is easy? This is the way of the cross. Right? You're going to go apologize to someone and they're not going to accept your apology. You're going to seek to bless and not curse and you might have to do it for a decade. But he calls us into this way of seeking reconciliation. Peacemaking is really of the same spirit as those five virtues in verse 8. If you're unreconciled, To anyone, anywhere, you have to do everything in your power to fix that. Today, like now, but it's their fault. Okay, you're off the hook then. No, in fact, what does Jesus say elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount? If you know that your brother has something against you, leave your offering and go take care of it. And then come back and make your offering. Peace. Real shalom. This is what the ethic of non-retaliation and blessing aims at. We do everything in our power to establish peace because it's an inestimable good. We seek the peace of the church. We seek the peace of the city where we live as exiles. We pursue and we chase after what makes for peace. Striving, the book of Hebrews says, for peace with everyone. Right? We are not gluttons for punishment. We're not chafing for persecution. We want peace. We want to love life. We want to see good days. And that means we have to speak and to act for this deep gospel, Christ-shaped peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons of God. For we know, Peter concludes, we know in verse 12, that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. What prayers have God's ears been hearing from us? What prayers? Prayer is the prime mode of blessing our enemies. It's the chief mode of seeking peace. We haven't begun in this way of the cross if we are not praying for people who hate us or despise our faith or who have abused us or who have ignored us or who have mistreated us. Notice the text says, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God's eyes are on us. His ears are attentive to our cries. His face is set against evil. This is good news because it means that there's a moral order in the world upheld and enforced by God himself. He sees. Now, the way he enforces it is often delayed, often hidden from us. 
But this is great news because it means this. It means that divine justice is the reason we are freed from self-administered justice. Like, if you feel like you've got to go after this person and get them to see it and get them to change their mind and do this and do that, that is a failure to believe that God is the judge of the earth. Right? This certain vindication promised by God liberates us from vindictiveness. Right? Vindication liberates us from vindictiveness. And that frees us from this dog-eat-dog world with all of its petty turf battles in this passing order. So Peter concludes this meaty, critical, important section of the book this way. Finally, all of you, in imitation of the suffering Christ who refused to take up the sword, right? who refused to exercise his rights as a Roman citizen, who refused to call for legions of angels and who is now vindicated. In imitation of him, let us clothe ourselves in the five virtues of verse 8 and the interpersonal peacemaking of verse 9. Let us speak and seek the peace of the gospel. For to this, to this, Blessing, you are called, summoned, that you might inherit an everlasting blessing. An everlasting blessing which was secured, by the way, through the unjust suffering of the Son of God, who refused to revile, who refused to threaten, but who entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Amen.